0: Welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you?
0: It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, be sure to check out all of the work uh, that we put out there on the internet. The best place to get that is by going to our app focuscompounding.com app. Um, we've had a ton of videos uploaded on there recently. And there are write ups from Jeff as well that are going on here. Uh, we have an iOS app that's actually currently in development. Um, but every time Jeff and I meet, we pull out the camera and we just go over topic after topic after topic after topic. And if you are a member, you could email me focuscompounding at gmail.com and send the questions, and you will uh, will go over them. And then this also gives you access to our backlog as well, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. 200 plus episodes. I think we're on like 230 or 204. Oh, 240. Got to be over 242 because that's yeah. right there. So pretty crazy. Uh, lots of fun. Seven ninety-five 95 a month. FocusCompound.com slash app. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about gross margins. And if you follow my Twitter at Focus Compound, you know I've been tweeting a lot recently about um, gross margins and unit economics. We actually uploaded on the app today a video about unit economics. Um, But gross margins are something that you know, you wrote a post, I was laughing on the rundown with Vela today, because I started talking about an old post that you wrote from 2017. And yeah. I was like, oh, it's one of the best write ups that he's ever written. And then I right. started laughing because I was like, every time I refer to a write up, if I remember in my uh-huh. head, you know, years later, I'm always like, oh, it's one of his best write ups he's <laughs> ever talked about or he's ever written. But I say that about everyone that I bring up in the past. But you did a write up from 2017. okay, And it was gross profits and learning to move up the income statement. Right. And you were talking Talking about if Munger describes EBITDA as bullshit earnings, then we should learn to move up the income statement. And this is something that you and I have also been privately talking about as well. Mm -hmm. You know, different screens, different ways to find companies. Um, You know, because it's, we were talking about how a lot of our situations uh, where we've been pretty successful, you know, they weren't, I mean, if you were looking at them from like sort of like a bird's eye view, they maybe weren't screaming cheap but they also weren't screamy expensive. Uh, We just like the high qualityness of the business. And also the author of Capital Allocation, which Mm -hmm. he's going to come on the podcast soon, he was talking about, he was very surprised when he looked at a lot of Buffett's best, you know, most successful investments. It was a similar situation. Right. They aren't as cheap as people
1: think. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, I'd say that our best and my best investments historically have been things... I don't know if you'd say they don't screen well or not. They screen fairly boring. Usually, people don't think they're expensive. They say, "Well, that's sort of average." Yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked about things before on this show, like uh, computer services or something like that, um, where it's a mid-teens, maybe at the most mark uh, uh, PE when we bought it or something. Uh, it had good, but not amazing. Um, earnings growth and things like that so it's not a stock that's growing 20 percent a year but it's also not a stock that has a single digit pe or something like that and those have usually worked out best i've said like 10 11 12 13 times pe 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. um is often where they i've had more success than say buying something with a pe of five or something like that um yeah And, and somewhat uh, somewhat cheap, somewhat higher quality, all those things, as opposed to one that screens really easily. It's hard to find these days. It's hard to find very attractive stocks based pure if they screen well. Mm-hmm. If they screen well as of today, then that's a bit of a problem because a lot of people will find them right away. Sure. So, which wasn't always the case. So when I mean people ask about differences between like the past and and now. Um, sometimes there are major differences, like with Buffett's early days, he could find stocks trading at like single digit PEs and things like that. And that's been basically impossible in the United States, um, like decent companies with PEs of one, two, three, four, that that's almost entirely impossible for most of the time I've been investing, Mm -hmm. uh, basically all of it. So about the last 20 years, the, um, you only find companies like that if people think they're about to go out of business or something, which is not the case. You used to find microcaps like that in like the 50s and stuff. Uh, but that's because of screens have changed mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this example I gave over the
0: weekend was, I was actually, I don't know if you could see it on the screen, but because it's, you know, kind of far away from my own screen. Um, this is Monster Beverage. Mm-hmm. And I got this example out of 100 Baggers by Christopher Mayer. And they were the one of the fastest growing companies or to reach the 100 bagger status. And it's interesting because you could look at their gross margins in 2000, for example, and they're always pretty steady. And then over time, you just see their EBITDA and their EBIT and their net income margins just explode. And then how that you know, how the market rewards that. So in 2000, it looks like it was a $36 million market cap. Uh, and then they, you know, chugged along. And then, you know, five years later, it was a $1.7 billion market cap. And it just never stopped from there. So gross profits is something that I've just been really, you know, studying a lot. So I guess from your history, I mean, what are the first things you typically look for? Because that's what you do, right? You study like the predictability of, of the gross profits mm-hmm. and what goes into that. So I guess take me through like step one and when you're first looking at an income statement and let's say that we're gonna go up the income statement because i use look at this look at this i went went viral this weekend because i used a quote that you had from the post and i actually i uh posted a little bit mm-hmm. further down, uh, but you said the further out the income statement you go, the more you learn about the inherent economics of a business, the further down the income statement you go, the more you learn about the people who run the business. Yeah,
1: that's true. So let's learn about the business and you know go up the income statement to sure. gross profits. So this is the thing I get the most pushback from. Mostly people say there's no value in looking at gross profits and stuff like that. Even when we talk about Chipotle or something, I point out that the gross profits, like the actual gross profits, not just the gross profit margin, but the actual gross profits haven't grown that much. And I talked about railroads and things like that so um if we yeah so they had the big decline and then since then when they had the uh food safety thing and then since then they haven't had a huge recovery in gross profits uh but they have had a pretty big recovery in terms of like uh uh, revenue and and stuff like that because they've they basically grown the company over time and Mm -hmm. we had trouble figuring that out because they leased the places and stuff so it's a little hard to see but that was the point that the economics haven't recovered as well from there as you might think from the stock's amazing recovery but like let's look at an example of what I mean by gross profits with Tandy so you gave an example so TLF or TLFA I guess technically is their ticker as of today or something Uh, Um, no but that's good for you yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) but but they've been delisted Uh so um, here's the difference with Monster right Mm. so Tandy has similar gross margins or maybe even a bit better gross margins than Monster Monster probably started at 40 and went up Tandy's been 60% gross margins for a long time Tandy also sells some leather, which probably has like 30% gross margin. So the actual amount on accessories is even higher. So most of the things they sell in terms of uh, actual stock keeping units have very high gross margins, probably 70% or more. Um, But it already is the dominant force in its industry. Okay. So if you're looking at it, it might be 10 to 100 times bigger than many of its competitors, or in fact, bigger than its biggest competitors, probably. So it has a very high market share, very high relative market share. So It has high gross margin, that's great, but how is it going to have the economies of scale over time grow into something like Monster? It's not. It's not going to be a hundred bag or something because it's in an industry niche that's very small. It's a $30 million company and it's already the biggest company in that industry. Mm-hmm. Whereas Monster had similar um, revenue in its early years as, uh, and gross profit as Tandy does today. So, 20 years ago or more, Monster was a similar size company, but it was in a very, very small, uh, very, very, it was a very, very small player in a very, very big industry. So, you could compare it to what happens when you scale up. Mm-hmm. And that's the really big thing to look at gross profit stuff does not give you any indications about what it will look like at scale. It's giving you indications of what it looks like um, today. And then it's gonna be very different. So it gives you ideas about the inherent profitability of the business usually. So if you have just one store or something, or one factory, you can often get pretty good ideas about gross profits, and how um, profitable the business is, like the inherent economics of it. Mm -hmm. But you don't have an idea of how big the opportunity is. And the problem that I think most people have is they look at things like operating profit and stuff like that. You'll see first, let's say if Amazon was going to be successful or something, you'll see first good numbers on gross profitability start happening before you see them on operating profit. And in fact, you'll see like free cash flow happen before you see uh, reported profits. And so it's just that reported profits can be a real lagging indicator for a company that has, lar- that has a potential for large scale. But if a company has poor gross profitability early on, um, then... It becomes a real question of whether the model will ever work we you've heard me before talk about like kind of being skeptical about things like um well food delivery but also especially things like uber and lyft and WeWork. and a big reason for that is i wasn't seeing a lot of indications of good unit economics at very small scale and they were already getting pretty big so basically like does it work on a single transaction? Right, exactly. And so would it work if you're big in one city or something? And then you could have the argument, well, now I can bring it to 100 uh, other cities. And that makes a lot of sense. So if you have losses on like the operating line, that that's fine. Um, they have high expenses for things. Like if the company was saying we have high R&D, we have whatever, but not on the basis that an incremental sale of something isn't bringing a lot of money. And we can see that if you go to see, look at Celsius, because I think Celsius is a really good indicator yeah. that way of being so similar to um celh right monster one point so five ends, billion dollar it ends right now. it ends the period with revenue about the same as monster started the period we looked at yeah uh-huh. right so but what you can see is gross margins already are pretty typical of what a beverage company looks like and we can even see that with some things we've talked about like Armenino and uh um Um, mama mancini and Mm -hmm. those things they also seem they already have gross margins that are very similar to what you see um food companies look like Mm -hmm. so they're very it's very industry related that way yeah Um, so you can see the losses mm -hmm. right and you can see the massive dilution that they had too or uh i mean you can't see it here but there was massive dilution every year um And those were the two problems that really held back returns. But you can also see indicators if we look at the, um, like for instance, we could just look at gross profit growth. That's one indicator. So uh, gross margin is a good one. So if you look at gross margin across the years, um, they had a change in accounting at one point probably. But other than that, we should see fairly, you have gross margins that are fairly decent. Um, But more importantly, so what are they at? they start the period at uh 47.8 in
0: 2009 and then i'd say the past couple of years the average is like about 40 percent
1: right. 41 okay but the thing that's really important is so a thing that i would look at is year over year growth in gross profit that's one of the most important ones actually when i read a earnings call or something one of my first questions is how much did gross profit l- the line grow
0: yeah it looks like it's growing like it was 59 percent, 37 percent, 49 percent, massively growing.
1: Yeah. And now it does matter how much capital they tie up to, which I'm sure you can find in things like um, diluted shares. So unfortunately, the number that matters is gross profit per share. This company did dilute sometimes, and that's why it had it, it didn't. Um, why, well, while it created a lot of value as a stock, obviously, uh, it didn't grow as much as its sales grew until very recently when it is more like self-financing and it's finally turning a profit basically. Um, but the reason why I care about how much gross profit grew is that growing revenue is not really, uh, growing revenue is pretty easy to do if it doesn't have to be profitable. Mm. So a big hint that it's not profitable is if revenue went up and gross profit didn't go up, that's a problem um yeah, you could cut your prices you right could mm-hmm. you can make sales that aren't ever going to be profitable i mean that's one of the problems with like tech companies when they value them new tech companies and things um at, uh, based on multiples of revenue well if they know they're being valued on multiples of revenue they could have some pretty low quality revenue in there so i was trying to remember today when betla and i were sort of down this path a little bit we
0: kind of went down a rabbit hole but i was saying that you said what was it 50 percent?" you think of like the overall return comes from the industry itself right is that what you said yeah so getting back to your you know tandy comparing tandy to a celsius and the difference there Mm -hmm. is in um the industry it's just massive and i guess maybe it's starting okay so the gross profits for Celsius are attractive, right? And it is in an in industry where it could potentially scale up massively as you're seeing right now.
1: Right. But there, there are pluses and minuses to this. Okay. So minuses are, uh, they'll come after you. A lot of competition. Because what let's put in Monster so you can get an idea. So Celsius has similar economics to how Monster started out. So what that means is A company like monster could have a competitor from someone like celsius because they have gross profit of what is that a couple billion yeah yeah a couple billion in gross profit and gross profit is kind of a pretty good indicator of how big the profit pool is you could say people use things like operating profit and stuff but it i think it's pretty good to look at gross profit not really sales they don't matter as much people will say things like oh the supermarket industry is huge or whatever yeah but gross profits are lower so gross profit margins are lower so like If supermarkets were a bigger industry than software, that doesn't necessarily matter if one has gross margins of 80% and one has gross margins of 20%. It's really the gross profits that matter to a company that they could bring in. Um, So it's a few billion. Whereas if we go to Tandy, um, Tandy's will be, let's see, like – uh what is it around 50 million yeah, yeah. 50, 50 million more, 50 and that's probably million. most of the industry to be honest so mm-hmm. the entire industry of leather crafting has less than a 100 million dollar gross profit opportunity and they may remind you of um uh breeze eastern so breeze eastern was a similar sized company in many ways to the kinds of companies we're talking uh, like to the tandy's and stuff actually tandy and um uh, Celsius aren't as big differences as you might think on revenue and profitability. They have huge differences on market cap now. Um, but microcap companies, so Celsius is not a micro cap anymore, but by size, it definitely is by its actual business size. And, um, the reason for that is Breeze Eastern was over half the industry, and another competitor, and Breeze Eastern together were all the profitability in the industry. So no one will come in and compete with you when there's not much room for making a lot of money. But there will always be someone looking to enter the beverage industry. So then, from like so big.
0: from like Tandy's perspective, is it really understanding the situation on what they're going to do with their capital going forward? So if there isn't a, if you say fifty one million is pretty much the whole market, mm-hmm. right? What do they? How does an investor earn a return? Is that in in this stock is it really more of a use the free cash flow to buy back stock to pay back to shareholders to do something else with it as opposed to you know growing top line sales by 10 to 15 percent
1: right I mean it's really just what's the what's the necessary gap between gross profit and operating profit. So if you look um Tandy as of now is earning basically nothing but even as of last year was earning um about one third of what it did previously on the same amount of gross profit and the same amount of sales. So it has added, it has lost 65% or more of its earnings through inefficiencies inside the business. And that's what I meant with like railroads. Um, And that's a big thing with turnarounds. It is much easier to turn around a company where the problem is not gross profits. So if we look at a company where there's, so Tandy's uh, gross margins have gotten worse. Now there's an offsetting thing here that gets a little more complicated, but really you want to look at gross profits and inventory together um, so if we look I'll show you three different examples here Tandy's a fairly stable example so where did they peak in terms of um, gross profits and uh, operating profit let's use so 2013 yeah 2013 so gross profit started at what level
0: Um from 2009, a margin,
1: gross profit margin.
0: The margin was about 60% in 2009. And then 2013, it went to 63%. And it's been declining since then.
1: Yeah, how much has been declining, though? Uh,
0: Well, 2014 was 62.5. 2015, 61.9. But then, uh, let's see, 2016, 62.4. 2017,
1: 63.3. And then 2018 was 60.9. There's been no decline, really. That's not a pattern of decline. It went up one period in there, dropped one the standard deviation is virtually none yeah. i mean we could look at chipotle i mean it's probably worse yeah, yeah it is worse yeah. um, as It as a spec. you actually when you wrote about
0: this for singular diligence i think you actually said it's one of the most stable gross margins you've ever seen right or, yeah
1: and it would make sense to use relative standard deviation or, or coefficient variation the same idea which is how much has it changed so if it's changed two percent or three percent on a 60 percent gross margin yeah, as you can see there's almost no variation yeah and why that's important is it means that it's more possible for someone to turn around let's just look at the balance sheet for a warning here which is this is much less meaningful if your inventory um is growing and shouldn't be so you want to look at two things gross margin and inventory okay the way that a company can inventory relative to cost of goods sold and, and stuff like that but we we'll, we can eyeball that but um the way that a company can generally achieve a higher gross margin is by slowing its inventory turns Okay, so let's say I want to I need to clear out my inventory. There's a few reasons why you might want to do that. Cyclically, you might want to do it because you're cyclical. And um, the other reason you might want to do it is like fashion risk or perishable things and stuff. You just have to get rid of it. If you're slow getting rid of it, you can achieve a higher margin. It's almost always true that the relationship is the faster you turn your inventory, the worse your margin is going to be. And the slower you turn your inventory, the better your margin is going to be. Why is that? I could understand the slow. Maybe you're not just okay. counting it. Pricing yeah. not here's back. an example. Let's say I run a website. Okay. I decide I will stock every item you could ever want in the world. Well, I'm going to make every sale. My gross margin is gonna be wonderful because you will Google anything and I'll have it, but that means I have to physically keep it in stock. I mean, that's a big issue with like, if I buy things from Amazon stuff, what's the biggest issue? I don't get it from Amazon. The number one issue is it'll take too long to send it to me. Uh Not because their delivery is too long, but because no one on Amazon or Amazon marketplace is stocking it. So I go somewhere else to buy it. So that's always their biggest factor. They offer the lowest price, but I don't care. I ignore them because I don't want to wait a month for that book. Right. So the biggest issue is a stock out. Sure. Right. So when you are in certain industries like spare parts and things. You might have to hold hundreds of thousands of items in which you can have high gross margins. People wonder, like, how does Granger or something like that have a high gross margin when they're selling you a light bulb or whatever? Well, it's because they can actually get it to you in a couple of days or something, and Amazon can't. And most places can't because they won't carry every version of what you need. Mm-hmm. The same is like, why does AutoZone have a such high uh, gross margins? Well, if you show up there and they have a replacement bulb for your exact car, Right. And they can tell you what it is and you can buy it right there in the store. Well, you're going to pay a lot more for that than if you had to try to figure out if Amazon will order it for you for a month from now or whatever. Sure. Okay. So if we look at inventories, their sales have not been growing. So we want to see inventories not growing. What have they been doing since 2013, which is when they peaked in terms of they've been been growing.
0: So okay. from 2013, they were 26 million, and then let's say 2017,
1: 37 million, 2018, 34 million. That's a huge warning, and I happen to know that about Tandy because they restated their inventory and stuff, and that's their whole reason behind their um, uh, their accounting things and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a very bad sign that they increased by like what did they increase by? They uh, increased by um, a fourth, something like that like 25% for no increase in sales. So that means their turns got worse and stuff. Their incentives previously, I think they've changed them, uh, were tied to EBIT, which actually gives no incentive for managers to worry about how much inventory they're keeping in the stores. So with retailers, this is a huge issue, always focus on inventory. But now let's look at, um, how about we look at Buckle? So Buckle is another example was it BK? Yeah, go, yeah. Of let's say, so what's Buckle's chances of turning around versus Tandy, right? Uh-huh. Well, let's look at gross margin. So they peaked probably similar years, Tandy, maybe a little bit. 2015, when did they peak? Uh, in terms of let's use gross profit or operating profit. Let's use operating profit. That's what most people Yeah, I mean, even use. gross profit, it was like 2013, 2014. Yeah, twenty fifteen. Right. So one thing is they've held up very well. For a company that sales have declined as much as this company has, gross margins have held up very well. That's a surprise. Usually you see severe gross margin problems with a specialty retailer like this, like a fashion retailer. So let's just look at the gross margins in their declining years. So what percentages were they? Gross margins.
0: So they went from 44 to 43 to 40 to 41 to 41 to, if you want to round up one decimal point, 42.
1: So they dropped less than one tenth of the total margin over that entire period. While we know that sales dropped dramatically, most retailers would not have that discipline. So whether that's good or bad, I can tell you that most retailers would try to have higher sales and let their margins fall. Mm -hmm. If we looked at like teen retailers that have failed and stuff, what they did is they tried everything to keep their sales up and their gross margins collapsed, right? So they sold at lower and lower prices and things like that. So if we look at balance sheet though, let's see what happened with their inventory. Looks like buckles, they're still selling their $100 shirts. You ever been to a buckle? uh yeah it's we'll we talk about this i went it's to a, i, I wouldn't go in a buckle because they're high touch sales you. people yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they start trying to sell me stuff actually right. the company that i get all of my pants from um was recently bought out of bankruptcy what company uh it's lucky oh that's what that's where i give my pants. yeah there it's there all of mine are for i didn't know they were in bankruptcy yep there you go. and they're bought for like a hundred something million interesting yeah same uh, company that bought brooks brothers bought them
0: got it yeah so inventory yeah so it's been i mean if you want to go to 2014 when everything started to decline or 2015 when it it did go up a little bit uh from 124 million to 150 million and then 2017 on it went from 126 million down to 121 million
1: okay but i'm going to show you how you can do this so if you see the inventories are basically stable from about 2014 to 2020 they haven't moved much no they have not moved much yeah so there's been very little change so now let's go to the income statement let's see if we can find cost of goods sold Okay, so cost of goods sold. So if inventory isn't dropping, you should see cost of goods sold also not dropping. But if cost of goods sold is dropping, then that means inventory relative to cost of goods sold has been increasing. And you can calculate this in Excel and stuff. And I always do this when looking at company. But what that means and why you use cost of goods sold instead of revenue is it takes out the fact that you might be marking things up. But it's your turns. okay? and so if we look at a company that has really high turns on this, let's go to like Village, V-L-G-E-A. So I can show you one that has very high turns. So inventory turns, if you look at the income statement, you'll see cost of goods sold, right? Yeah. So cost of goods sold, it says, is like $1.2 uh, billion recently. What does it say at the far right? Uh, yeah, trailing 12 okay. months. Then look at balance sheet. All right. So what you'd expect is if it's slow, you'll see a very big number for inventories. And if it's not slow, then you'll see a small number. So uh, what's the inventory show? as? A- $39 million. Okay, so what you would then do there is you would say, okay, well, if their inventory is only that much, Mm -hmm. then you can divide their inventory into their their total cost of goods sold that they had and get an idea for how quickly they're turning over their inventory. So as you saw with the buckle example, um, the inventory takes a very long time to turn. Mm -hmm. So like let's use buckle as the example again and using cost of goods sold. We'll see how close they are to each other. Cost of goods sold. uh, We can round it. What is that like 500 million or something? Okay, then the balance sheet inventories okay 121 million okay so four or five times uh they're turning the inventory four times a year or so so about seasonally right Mm. whereas on the other hand when we gave the example of um of uh, village yeah, yeah. they're they're turning about 30 times a year mm. so that's less than once every two weeks they're turning out on average um now of course they're totally different things like you might be turning eggs and milk very yeah, quickly sure. and other things not yeah. but no matter what it's very very high turns which allows you to have stable margins that way so the stable margins things if you look at village again um this is an example if you look at the income statement, of what i would say is more of a Not necessarily competitive problem. So competitive problems usually show up in gross margin. Operational problems, VLGEA. Um, Operational problems usually show up lower down the balance sheet, uh, the income statement. So if we look at just the income statement, or we could look at the key ratio, the overview. Yeah, yeah, the overview Overview. is fine. Yeah. So if you look, the gross margin shouldn't have shifted that much. It's around 27%. It should have stayed very, very stable. Okay. Now, generally, you'll either have to hold more inventory, so your inventory will get pushed up, Or your gross margin will be affected if you have competition issues. If a company claims that it's competition reasons for it, I wouldn't buy it if their gross margin isn't moving and their inventories aren't moving. It's actually probably an internal corporate issue about poor execution and stuff if things further down are having problems mm-hmm. so if your operating margin like uh, here see, is having problems yeah. now to be fair of course it could be their rent or something
0: and this is what you're talking about to take it back a little bit about um, turnarounds you if you're going to invest in turnaround you want to make sure their gross margins are okay because if it's below that then maybe it's something to do at the corporate level or like with personally you know, I can't evaluate like a
1: turnaround that's based on improving your competitive position yeah mm-hmm. I would say it's very risky so if someone says bet on a turn Around at you know sears or whatever well if it's because they're they're um, com- competitively that was worsening that's very different than betting on a turnaround for something like i was saying with um uh, you know, like, let's like say village as an example. So village gross margin, how close has it been to 27% for the last 10 years? It's like every year, pretty much. Right. So that gives no indication that's competition problem. And even though people might believe that and talk about it that way, that just wouldn't be the case. You wouldn't have margins that stable. You can divide the variation in the gross margin by the gross margin itself and see that there's almost nothing that's stable. Mm-hmm. So if they're having issues like that, we could go and look at Costco and say, well, Costco must be having the same competitive issues or something, you know? Um, because if we look at their gross margins, they should be very stable, but not all that differently stable than than village. Yeah, in fact, like I think there's like well there, in terms of the percentage yeah, it is, mm-hmm. but actually like the coefficient. But variation. actually villages are twice as high. So yeah. if anything, costcos have varied more. They show more indication of competition. So I don't buy it. But if we go to village, what's the difference? Villages had problems growing. And so maybe it's had problems where it hasn't grown its sales each year organically and stuff as much as its rent might be growing. It, hasn't, it has not been raising maybe its executive salaries too quickly things like that. So because it hasn't had an ability to grow much, if you look, the long-term chart for them is 3% average revenue growth over the years, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you're not seeing that at Costco. So maybe we'd have to check, but if executive salaries are growing more than 3%, if IT costs are growing more than 3%, if rent and things like that are growing more than 3%, then we could see issues with the operating margin. So if you look, their their earnings per share hasn't increased for 10 years, even though their gross margin has been fine. And so you shouldn't see a decline in. At. but something is going on at village that's a problem okay so is it sgna for example yeah it's gone up right so has it let's see it's basically double that's seven percent a year if that's true is that doubling no no it's not doubling no. It's gone from 281 million in 2005 percent or so about 400 million yeah in but it explains the difference basically and then we have to look at why that is but a lot of times people focus in on like the competitive issue and that really can't be it Village hasn't been able to grow, so it hasn't been able to open and acquire new things. I agree with that 100%. But if someone tells me this is a competitive thing, I, I'd say, no, it's not a competitive thing. Because if you look, each store is doing similar amounts of gross profit as it was before. Yeah. It, um, their margins are the same as they were before. If you had serious competition problems, gross margins should look like they do at Buckle. That's a mm-hmm. company that actually is facing competitive problems with their product not selling as well in the marketplace. That's not what was happening there. Let's see, we pull that up again for people to
0: see on YouTube. Yeah, it's gone from, let's see, about forty-four percent down to forty-two. But at one point, it was in the fours, yeah,
1: forties. So we could put in like a, just put in like a restaurant or something. So put in, um, will you pot Zoe's Kitchen, cheesecake, any of those kinds of ones? Pot belly. Okay. Uh, not prosperity. Uh, is potbelly still Zoe's Kitchen was taken private. Potbelly is still public. Yeah, what, it's like PvP. What is it? Oh yeah, Potbelly. There it is. There we, go. PB, Corporation. PB, PB. there we go okay. oh. is that it let's see nope nope that no, oh that's the good. Australian one okay 110 million dollar market cap all right ticker pbpb okay so let's look at its gross margin okay so when did its gross margin peak It peaked in 2011 at uh 22 okay. Sure. okay so that's a bit of a problem now let's just read the numbers going right Okay, that's very worrying. One, those gross margins are very low for a restaurant. Two, um, it's generally a declining trend that you have there. And so if you ask me, could they turn it around versus another kind of um, company? The problem is I don't, another kind of restaurant... Uh, like say a village, what are the chances that village or Tandy, for instance, mm-hmm. Tandy to many people looks much worse than, than potbelly or whatever, but I would be much more worried about potbelly than Tandy. And even like 2014 to 2015, revenue went from 327 million to
0: 373 million, which grew 14%. And gross profit just really didn't even didn't even move. Right. Because it's all basically not helpful yeah, that way. 2016, 407 million to 2017, uh, revenue of 428 million, revenue of
1: 5% growth. And gross profits actually fell about, you know, almost close to 2%. It seems like they as they open stores, things the economics keep getting worse and worse and stuff. Yeah. And that can be even more cons- because if you start out generally your your economics for any retailer restaurant will get worse over time on a unit basis because you'll be filling in more and more same idea with chipotle the first chipotle's i went to had weights of an hour and a half or something because they were the some of the first chipotle's around but as they filled in that drops down starbucks did the same thing and stuff even we talked about like walmart's their most successful ones were in rural places and stuff. eventually you have to move into the places you chose last Mm -hmm. potbelly presumably if you do let's see how many locations do they have um do they tell us? i know they were closing this says 400 here but i know they're okay going to close like well, 100 unprofitable your stores. first hundred you would put in places that are better than your last hundred in yeah. terms of the demographics of what you were picking yeah i was reading in qsr magazine that they were closing 100 unprofitable
0: stores yeah <laughs> i'm like wow 25 and is unprofitable it's pretty crazy Right
1: now that is the thing moving up even further from the the income statement when you actually read about the company you can learn even more so potbelly might have might have realistic reasons to think it'll turn around and stuff if you find out that half their locations are unprofitable because then someone can come in and close that half I see what right you're saying. yeah you know i mean that can be a big advantage the same thing also gross margin accounting you need to understand because like we compared monster and celsius actually at certain times the companies have accounted for freight differently uh some companies account for freight by including it if they pay the customer's freight sometimes it's included in a way that makes it look like their margin is lower than it actually is but it also inflates their revenue and stuff like that um but but it doesn't really matter because in both cases no matter how you account for it customers basically pay freight you raise your price by however much it costs to ship to them um so it's important to understand that kind of accounting and it's important to understand the unit economics likewise Mm. for potbelly if they claim that like you open a store. And it's unprofitable for a year, but then it becomes profitable. That is a good excuse for why your returns might be poor, right? A bad excuse though is anything other than that. Yeah, that sure. that it's your growth that you have. But there are some places like that. That um, insurers are a good example. Uh, insurers generally are going to if you have uh, something where you have very high retention rates, you your customer acquisition cost exceeds the how much you'll make from the customer in the first year or two so a customer ensure uh, that chooses not to grow will actually show better results this year than like geico or progressive who advertise heavily to win customers because they expect to keep them for a long time mm-hmm. so same thing if your store takes a while to get successful then that's a legitimate reason and again that's you can move even further up to the point where you're not even looking at the income statement you're looking more at the actual unit economics of like customer acquisition costs, mm-hmm. things like that, and how, retention of the customers, even better ideas when companies offer you that. So what are the store economics and what are the customer economics? Those are even better unit economics than like looking at gross profit. But gross profit is a start. It's the first uh, it's the first line in terms of the income statement that really helps you out. Cool. Fun fact, when I was reading about Potbelly, they used to be a record store.
0: And I guess they would sell sandwiches at lunchtime. Okay. And they were really famous for like toasting their sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I guess it really took off from there, and they switched from being in the, the uh, record CD store or whatever and switched to selling sandwiches. And now it's it's a, the pop out that we know today. It's a very interesting look to a place. Yeah. 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 And then when you go in there, it is kind of very much like that. Like, kind of, I don't want to say bad. retro in a way, but yeah, retro. Yeah, yeah. You know? absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. So cool. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I and the Focus Compounding Podcast. We are using QuickFS right now and throughout this uh, podcast. So if you want to sign up for this, Jeff and I use it every single day. Somebody tweeted at me. They're like, how are you pulling all these uh, numbers for the the pictures of the Excel? I'm like, I'd like to say I just spent, you know, an hour building this model myself, but Mm -hmm. I click a button two seconds later, populates it and it's fantastic. So if you do sign up for it, make sure you tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.